Welcome to Day Beautiful's Digital Book Tour. This is a podcast series I'm putting on so that authors are able to connect with the readers even though we're all self-quarantining and social distancing and keeping safe during COVID-19. To discover more debut authors, please check out daybeautiful.net where you can access book recommendations, more author interviews, and links to every single podcast I'm doing on the Day Beautiful podcast feed. Today's guest is Leslie Gray Streeter, who is a columnist for the Palm Beach Post and wrote her debut nonfiction work called Black Widow. The subtitle is A Sad Funny Journey Through Grief for People Who Normally Avoid Books with Words Like Journey in the Title. It's about her late husband and their romance and relationship and the adoption of their child. It's very beautiful. And I do have to apologize, it was snowing here in Denver when we were recording, and it messed with the connection at some times, but you could still hear all of Leslie's words fairly clearly. And I just want to give you a heads up that sometimes it cuts out, but otherwise, 90% of it, amazing. That's enough of me rambling about the weather here in Denver. Here's Leslie. Hey, Leslie, how are you doing in this super weird time that we're living in? It's okay. It's, you know, as you mentioned, it's... um. It's a very weird time. Um, I released a book like a lot of people did in the middle of pandemic, so that's always fun. It's not fun. Um, and so I'm trying to promote that and work full-time job. Um, as a newspaper reporter, uh, my son, who was six in kindergarten, has, you know, he's transitioned to working at home. So he's, you know, getting live lessons with his teacher in his class from 9 to 10, and he has assignments and stuff. But I'm also working, and my mom, who is my co-parent, is working so it's it's settling into a groove, but those grooves sometimes change. You mentioned you you had a book come out during all of this. It's called the short title is Black Widow, and then it has yeah. a it has a longer subtitle, which is A Sad Funny Journey Through Grief for People Who Normally Avoid Books with Words Like Journey in the Title. Tell me, yep. tell me, and readers, tell tell us a little bit more about Black Widow. Well, Black Widow, it was funny for a while I was using the hashtag on Twitter, not Scarlett Johansson, because um, obviously Black Widow, you know, decades-long character um, for the last, you know, 15 years or so in Marvel movies, and the movie is coming out, well, it's supposed to come out, it's supposed to come out, I think, now, and it's been postponed for a while, um, so every once in a while people would hashtag my book, Black Widow, and the little... Um, red symbol would come up. It's like, no, not Scarlett Johansson. So I didn't want to feel like what people who primarily search, primary search was for things about the movie or the character to think that I was trying to hoodwink anybody by calling my book that and understand. Some people did not understand that the term Black Widow predated that character. And it does. Although for some people it meant so it's either a spider or a woman who kills her husband or her mates frequently. I am not that person. I'm not. I'm, e- I'm neither. But I am black and a widow. So it all. Um, and I thought it was pretty funny, in a kind of gallows humor sort of a way. And the subtitle refers to, in a very long-winded way, the idea that this. First of all, to understand that this is also funny. It's very sad, obviously, because ostensibly things about being widowed are sad. It, it's a sad thing, but also I write with humor naturally because that's how I write. And I processed the loss of my husband, Scott, um, in 2015 from the very beginning in an at least ironically humorous way because that's how I process emotion. And I process things 
the writing as I always have. So it sort of just wound up as a book. And then we'll dive a little bit into it, but I wanted to give readers a chance to hear how fun you do write in situations like this. Um, what are you going to read for us today? I'm going to read for us. Hold on a second. I'm going to close my door here because there's a six-year-old out in the hallway. Um, I, that's fine. I'm going to read a chapter, chapter seven of the book. Um, what I do in the book is explain that while it's sort of, it's about the first year of my widowhood, um, between July 2015 and July 2016, it's also an introduction to my husband and I and our love story. Um, a friend of if his made me promise when I first talked about writing a book that I would make Scott, as he said, not just a dead guy, that I wouldn't make him like they do in the Hallmark movies, um, just you know, the person that died. So then you move on and you cry and whatever. Then I make him a real character in the book and in my life. So I introduce people to Scott. So what I've done in this chapter is write about a story that we told each other that we loved each other. And I don't know if I'll get to that specific part because it's a pretty long chapter, but it's funny and it involves um, spandex and haunted cats. All right. Take so. it away whenever you're ready. Thank you. It is called, this chapter is called, Try Not to Ruin Your Romantic Weekend by Throwing Up Too Much. About two years after Scott dies, I attend the Tampa edition of an annual international conference called Camp Widow. It's very much about widows, but not at all about camping, because I don't ever camp. And as much as I want to heal, I never want to heal that much. Camp Widow is where widowed people of every gender, race, age and geographic location come to just be to fall apart or share or help each other or laugh about dark widow shit that no one else gets i meet a very wise woman named tanya whose firefighter fiance sergio died on 9 11 and she told me at first it destroyed her to think that her fiance would never make new memories but as she began to tell their story to those who didn't know him, to talk about things they did and who he was, she realized that a whole new group of people had now been introduced to him, that they now had new memories of Sergio. He'll live on in those stories with those new people. Isn't that gorgeous? So in that spirit, here's the story of the first time I told Scott I loved him. It would have eventually happened anyway, but happened to happen in an expensive room at the Mandarin Oriental in Miami. So it's extra cinematic. Scott won two nights in the hotel and a spa package in a silent auction at a celebrity dance competition where I came in third. I was wearing a neon green spandex situation along with a pair of Spanx that not only didn't suck anything in, but pushed my fat up into an extra shiny shelf of even more fat. Sequined neon fat. Dancing with the Spanx would prove to be significant for a few reasons. It was the first time Scott met my mom, who hadn't quite realized how serious we were. I've been playing my feelings for him pretty close to the vest, so close that they were practically embroidered onto the vest. It was also the day that Scott made it clear to us how permanent his feelings for me were, announcing that he'd spent the afternoon looking for an apartment near me. So it was getting real, perhaps too real. At the time, Scott was still bunking with his cousins in Boca Raton, about a half an hour from me. I wasn't really interested in long-term dating someone who didn't have his own place. He was at my condo a lot, mostly chastely, because I was still sticking to my celibacy guns. 
but I didn't want him living with me officially until we were married. It was partially due to my own convictions, but also because I didn't want to disappoint my family. They were several states away, so I could have just lied to them, but that would have created one of those sitcom situations where you forget whom you've lied to when, and then your grandma's coming over while you're hiding a man in the shower. I didn't have time to floss. I certainly didn't have time to keep track of all that. I now somewhat regret that as much as Scott spent, much time as Scott spent at my place, I didn't let him and all of his jerseys officially move in early because I was a grown woman who didn't like admitting that she was still making major life choices based on other people's approval. Because I was previously bad at relationships, I was hesitant to accept that his residential plans had anything to do with me. So are you moving up closer to me because of me or because that's just where you'd like to live? I asked. Because of you, Scott said matter-of-factly, then went back to whatever it was he was doing. What if we don't work out? I could have blown this. Fortunately, Scott was not to be swayed by my rookie skittishness. We'll work out, he said, because he was such a confident guy, such a go-down-with-the-ship sort, at least when it came to us. Sometimes it seemed foolhardy, but we all got to go down sometimes, so it might as well be together. And while we're on the subject, it's a good time to remind you that since we all got to go down sometime, as in get sick and die, you should always listen to your doctors and take your prescribed medications. Right before the dance competition, Scott told me and my mom about an apartment he'd seen that afternoon near the port of Palm Beach, maybe 15 minutes from my condo. It had seemed like a nice older home and a possibility until the woman showing it to him pointed to a painting on the wall. In my imagination, it was one of those haunted house portraits with the eyes that follow you like on Scooby-Doo. The woman in the painting was the home's former owner, who, the friend showing the house said, was right this minute haunting and watching over the place to make sure it was being rented to the right person. Also, the eventual tenant was going to have to take care of the deceased's cat, Mr. Christmas. Enjoy your haunted house and cat. Are you going to go visit Scott if he takes an apartment, my mom whispered. Oh, hell no, I said, planning to talk him out of it. I did love him, however, so I'm sure if he'd taken it, I'd have been over there soon enough with Mr. Christmas and the haunted painting soon enough. Love makes you do dumb shit. I look at photos of me at the dance competition now with my disco ball trophy that was literally a disco ball, super glued into a trophy cup, and my lime green double fat, and it makes me laugh. My real prize was this man. I'd yet to cop to the last part, but it was coming soon. Getting to stay at the Mandarin felt special because I had been there for press junkets to interview famous movie people. I once sat across from the rock on a balcony as his publicist tried to cut my interview short so some TV people had more time. To his credit, he wouldn't let her. And then there was a time that Daniel Craig, arm in a sling, opened one of those tiny hospitality diet pokes with his good hand and I can't remember what most of the other I think I might have passed out with my eyes open. My knees were actually sweating under my tall leather pirate boots. Daniel Craig makes your knees sweat. It's science. And there you go. Thank you so much for reading that because your book is so personal. It it deals obviously with the passing of your husband. Um when did you decide to that you wanted to write about that time in your life? Oh, gosh. Um, I knew that, and this is, you know, something that people who are journalists and columnists understand. As Nora Ephraim said, everything is copy. 
everything is copy. When once you get in the habit of writing confessionally and personally, it's more of a decision what not to write about than what to write about. And I knew that because I was a person, I used to just write about happy stuff, about like dating or you know hanging out with my friends. And when I got married, I wrote about a wedding. I wrote about taking our first road trip, and I wrote about getting a house. And then when my father died in 2012. I had the opportunity to write a column, and the first one was very surfacy. And my editor said, it seems like you're trying to avoid writing about his death. I was like, of course I am, because it sucks. What I did was I took it back and just wrote, and just wrote. And there were very few edits, because I just it was one take, like Krusty the Clown, you know, recording his audio. Bing, bam, boom, takes a cigar out, records it, <laughs> puts it back in and leaves. And that's what it was. But it was a lot more personal, and I just let it there. And that's what happened. So when Scott died, I knew not only that I wanted to, I would write something for the paper, turned out to be multiple things. I knew I wanted to write a book that day. Um, I had a friend who was a, an author who I used to say, oh, I got five paragraphs of fiction. I got two chapters of fiction, and I would never write it. And he would say, you're going to eventually write the book that you need to write, that you have to finish. And so that day in my kitchen, I said to my friend, whose name was also Scott, I think this is my book. And he said, I think it is, kid. Because I, it's the thing I had to write. And um, saying it is easier, obviously, than doing it. And it was not easy. Some of it was more natural to write and kind of get out there. Some of it was really hard. And some of it had to do with the subject matter. And some of it had to do just with getting it right. Making a very long chapter. Like there's a chapter about the hearing in which my son's birth parents' parental rights were terminated. And that chapter is very long, and we cut as much of it as we could because I needed to tell the story in a way that didn't make people's eyes glaze over and didn't seem clinical, but also I needed it to be emotional and also factually accurate. I needed to, and I sent it to all the social workers and said, and to his lawyer years later and said, does this sound right to you? Am I saying something about this process? And that's what the journalist in me is not fictionalizing that part and making stuff up. And, you know, memories are faulty, so I wanted to make sure that I was not only remembering what happened correctly, but I was remembering the process and that someone doesn't say, well, clearly that's a lie because that's not how it works. And so everyone emailed me back and said, this is fine. Mm -hmm. And I went, great. So that was hard. And then as a journalist, you know, you're, you're trained a certain way to write and to think about writing. And then you're also a yeah. columnist, which is slightly different than like straight journalism because you get to put it in your own flavor. Absolutely. How was, because you're a columnist, was, was switching off that journalist part of your brain easier? Like, I know you just mentioned you had to go back and fact check like a journalist would, but were you able to be a little bit more free-flowing and creative while writing this? Um, I am usually free-form and creative, but there were certain things that you cannot do in a newspaper, like write really, really long. Um, I use words and language that I would not use in a newspaper. Um, I don't write for Rolling Stone or, you know, BuzzFeed or whatever. I can't say the F-bomb in, in print. So giving myself permission to go nuts, but also understand that most of the people reading my columns, unless they know me went to high school with me or, or my grandmother, are people who live in this area. So I'm well known and my story is well known in this area, but not so much in Poughkeepsie or in Arizona or wherever. So I had to do the trick of telling the story once again in a way that was not boring or repetitive, but to make sure that people understood where I was coming from and doing that in ways that are interesting. You have more space 
as a as a writer in a book, but you also have less time to keep people because there's a billion other things to read. If they don't connect to it very quickly, they're going to go on and move on to something else, which is what pre- previews on Kindle were made for. And I want them to buy the book, you know. So yeah, it was a real challenge to go with the flow, but not flow so much that it it lost the narrative. Mm-hmm. You you didn't want Scott to come off as this, and and and, your, and all his loved ones didn't want Scott to come off as this Hallmark Channel character. Yes. When you started writing him, I, not as a character, but him in the book. Yes. Was it originally easier? How did you how did you crack that, past that? That is such a good question. I'm so glad you asked that. You want to do justice to anyone that you're writing about, particularly if they are not here to approve the chapters. And it's not I'm not and I love Taylor Swift, but I'm not Taylor Swift writing about my ex boyfriends who may read it and go, Wait a minute, that's me particularly if you call the book if you all call the song Dear John and you dated um, you know, John Mayer Everyone knows who you're talking about. Everyone, no one know. Everyone knows John Mayer. No one knew my husband other than the people who knew him. So I bore a responsibility to get him right. Now, understanding also that my experience with him as his wife in the last six and a half years of his life might be different than the way his dad or his brother or his cousins or the people he went to college with experience him. So I made. I knew two things. I knew that I needed to send a couple chapters to people who had known him throughout the years to say, does that sound like him? But I had to also know that I knew my husband and there were things that other people did not know about him that I knew. Like they did not know about us waiting till we were married to have sex. He didn't tell anybody that. I didn't tell anybody that. My friends knew. But I tell it in the story because to me that's indicative of who he was, that he's this guy who waited for this woman that he loved because that's what was important to her. And she wanted to have this time of celibacy, and he did it for me. To me that says that's all you got to know about that guy because he denied himself something he really wanted to do because that's what I needed to do. And that says a lot about him, understanding that to other people that might mean something different. But I wrote it anyway, and I explained, yeah, you're going to be mad at me. You can yell at me when you see me. And wherever we are in the next life, he's welcome to yell at me then. But I wanted to get him right. But like I said, I also wanted to understand that this was not focus group. I had family members of him who were very helpful and said, well, what about this? And write about that and write about what he did when he was five. Right? I was like, I didn't know him then. So that's not my story. This is not a biography of Scott. This is a biography of the two of us together and – I was telling two stories at the same time, both of the past and the future and the present, and I needed to honor that. And also, as a journalist, be confident of my voice as a narrator of the story and said, I am telling this story from my direction, which is why things like alternate histories of things are so – or alternate fiction of histories are so interesting because people go, you know, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern is dead, you know, the – Hamlet story from minor characters, or this is, you know, Maleficent, or this is what the evil fairy thought, or whatever. So those things, everyone has their own perspective of the same story, um, which is fascinating, but this is mine. And I had to feel confident writing it, so I did. And I, I, I think I did him justice. I hope I did. After the book was finished, and I know you said you had to edit chapters down, so 
you know, it's still a book. It's still entertainment, regardless of how sad, funny it is. What was your family and his family? Did did they read finished copies before it came out? Um, It depends on who it is. Some people wanted to wait. Um, And I, some people wanted to wait. And some people wanted, like my mother read both. She's read it twice now. She read a draft and then she's read the finished copy now twice because we're in a pandemic and it's there in the house. So, um, so she has a sense of it. I sent it to a couple of friends um, from my side and his side, the, the draft of it to say before it goes to final, 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 final edit, is there anything that's glaring? I don't want you to copy it. I want you to read it as a reader and as someone who knew him and tell me if I got this right, particularly people who were mentioned in it. Like, did I, did I get this right? Was I right about it? And some was nitpicking things that honestly nobody else would have known. But my sister was like, well, this person arrived before this person. So don't say, I mean, once again, who cares, but it's accurate. So I, I changed some of that stuff. But the, the sense I got was that there were things they didn't know, or there were things they would say, well, don't forget this. And sometimes it's like, I'm the writer, so I noted and moved on. But some people had some really good points about things, and I really appreciated that, because, and that's what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was there a, a sense of relief once those close friends oh, finally dude. got past it? Dude, um, there are people who just now are, are reading it. Um, I mentioned my friend Tanya, who I met at Camp Widow, who is a 9-11 widow, who texted me yesterday and said, I just read the book. Thank you so much. Cause she knew she was in it. I told her just want to let you know, I'm including you. And she said, okay, but she just read it last week. And I was a huge relief because that whole idea of being able to make peace with the fact that on earth, your love will not make memories, but that you introduce them to other people with stories and memories. And that makes new memories of those people who felt like they've known them as well as they can. That was so important to the story and the fact that she, the person who introduced that sort of solidified philosophy to me, that she liked it, made me so happy and so relieved. Um, his dad has started reading it, and that, and he's a writer himself, so he read the first 40 pages really quickly and was really pleased, and that meant a lot um, to me. Um, his cousins have started to read it. Um, and you know, it's, it's hard, you know, for them, you know, but they, they really enjoy it. Um, family members of mine, um, my, I have a, a couple of pastors in my family and there's some spicy language and I write about sex in it. And my, both of my pastor aunt and uncle were like, ah, it's fine. And my grandmother called and said, I don't appreciate the language, but I really like it. It's really good. So I got past that hump. So everyone seems to be pretty pleased. And to change subjects ever so slightly, just because I want to cover who Leslie Grace Streeter is as a whole, you you mentioned you are a columnist for the Palm Beach Post. Yes, I am. Right now, and I don't want to get too into this if you don't want to, but right now it's a tough time for newspapers. Um, I know you know that. <laughs> well, right now I speak to you from a, from a week-long furlough. Um, and I feel comfortable talking about it because I've put it on social media. Um, I, we are owned by Gannett now, and we are on one week a month for the next three months, a week-long unpaid furlough, which 
is which sucks because I'd like to be writing about this crisis and I'd like to be paid for that writing. But in the same time, I this is my second interview of the day about this book whose not only do I think that it's important to talk about grief and these things in this time for so many reasons, also my book tour got canceled and this is the only way I'm going to make any money and raise awareness in a slower, more organic way, but still doing that um, by doing this. And I can do that full time this week and start working on my other, my next book I'm writing and do some things and not have to worry about turning on a story on deadlines. So I'm fortunate enough to, you know, my health insurance still works and things are really good in that way. But yeah, things are, things are sucky. And I think things, newspaper, um, at least digital subscriptions are up because people want to know, although so many papers, including mine, have made the crucial um, coronavirus COVID-19 stories come from behind the paywall. So those basic things, who's doing takeout, who's serving dinner, who's doing what, those things are crucial survival things. But we have never needed journalism, fair, unbiased, truthful journalism more. And the fact that we are making it more difficult for people to tell those stories and get paid a living wage for them is incredibly difficult. And it's not, like I said, I have no problem saying this because it's not just my newspaper company. It's everywhere. It's the way that things are going and have been going for the last couple of years, even before this. And while I think that more and more people in the last month are appreciating what we do, Money is still a thing. Advertising is still a thing. And it's very difficult to know what the future of these things are. People are still getting laid off. At least I didn't lose my job, you know. Um, but it's hard to do this job under the specter of knowing that your colleagues around the country are losing their jobs. And that there's still some people who are calling what you do fake because they don't want to know. It's, it's, not, it's not cool. But I'm, I'm so proud of what I do. I've never wanted to do anything else. And no, I don't usually write about news. And even the COVID stuff I've written about has been about food or about bands who are playing online now, or like a kid who was on, who's going to be on Little Big Shot, stuff like that. I've written a lot of stuff that's about COVID, but for more from a features perspective, because that's what I do. And I'm proud to do it. And I will do it until I don't have a paycheck anymore. And then I'll figure out some other way to do it. Just to hear how passionate you are about journalism and newspapers is just, it's, it's such a treat. I, Thank you. I, I'm one of those, my, my mom, my mother lives back in Pennsylvania and I'm on the West Coast and I subscribe to our old hometown paper just so I know what's going Where on. Where in Pennsylvania? Uh, Scranton. Hey, I lived in York in the oh. southern part of the state for eight years. I wrote for newspapers. Definitely, I um at one point for a little less than a year, we lived in York County because my father was commuting to Baltimore. So yeah. Hey, where, where I'm from? Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. Awesome. And um, but anyway, so I'm on like you know I follow the Scranton Times Tribune on Facebook, and I always see people like I can't read this article. Like the, why? And I'm like yeah, you have to pay for it. like things aren't free. <laughs> like you have to like the no. the journalist who spent two day, like days tracking down this quote it needs to be paid it's super irritating and i just i don't know who you are i assume that you're younger than me but having to explain and this is not the fault of millennials and younger people because it's just the, the world that they're raised in where things appear to be free and information is bountiful and everywhere so when they hit a paywall particularly those who were not raised with by parents who get daily daily newspapers 
or watch the news. So they don't understand news as a business. They understand it as just information and data. So there is an irritation that some data that you want to read is not free. And so I've had philosophic discussions with people about, well, shouldn't news be free? It's vital. And I would say food is vital. Is it free? Your rent is vital. Is it free? Your car is vital. Is it free? And people understand what I'm saying because I, I went to a, a high school class once for this girl who, you know, high school students, they know everything. And she says, lips pursed, knowing more than the old person, hand up. Well, I believe that information is flowing and it should be free. And I said, and then before I started to talk, the teacher said, let's call her Jessica. Jessica, your parents pay for your phone. That's not even free. He goes, you think it's free because you don't pay for anything. I was like, ooh, where? He goes, literally, even the the phone on which you you access information, someone else paid for. The internet access that you had, your parents paid for. The the otter box on your phone to get the information, someone else paid for. So even before you even get to the actual words flowing into your phone the access to it even is not free. And the people who made the phone at Apple want to get paid. And the people at FPL or whoever is providing your internet service want to get paid. So why shouldn't the journalist? And she hadn't thought of it that way because they don't think about people doing the thing. I also kind of think that it it comes from Google. <laughs> and it's there somewhere. So just explain to people and not like a whiny way or a way that makes you feel sorry for us because there's nothing to feel sorry for. But even back in the day when before the internet, if you were going to read a newspaper, either you had to pay the quarter for it or you had to wait till someone on the subway discarded it. Yeah, exactly. And I like how you bring all that up. Like rent is, or your roof is vital, food is vital, but, and, and journalism is vital, but it, it's all, I like that. It all does cost money regardless of how nece- necessary it is. Absolutely. I mean, look at the people right now that are risking their lives to bring us food. To bring us the mail, and the mail system is is in jeopardy. I mean, it's such a no brainer that those things are important. And people, I read this horrible story yesterday that there are people who are actually going on food delivery apps, grocery delivery apps, and saying they're going to pay twenty percent tip and then canceling it when the people get to bring their food because there are people who left their house because you offer them a twenty two percent tip. And to know that you were going to cancel it and they've done nothing wrong, you just feel like a jackass that day, is so evil and I want to punch you in the face. Because that person is now at risk of bringing your germs home to their family or to themselves because you wanted to save $12. Yeah. I just find it such a fascinating time how – and uh, like, yeah, it's just I don't know what America and the world will look like after all of this. Mm-mm. And like maybe we're in limbo, and maybe things will go back to normal, but maybe some of what we're experiencing is the new norm. Yes, and I think that what's going to happen is this is so horrible to say it's going to weed some of the jackasses out because there are people who they're just going to stop serving you. I think that I'm hoping that the people who are canceling tips that those services are making note of them and saying you can't get delivery on our service anymore. Good luck to you. I hope that people are saying to people. You abuse people in this forum, which is the only connection that we have. You zoom, you dive bomb people on Zoom with penis pictures because you think it's funny. No more Zoom for you. No more internet for you. And I think that people are getting tired. That they're arresting people in my native state of Maryland 
if you have a party and they find out about they're arresting you because they told you and you're trying to be cute and now you're going to jail because you had to have a bonfire. Stupid. Good for you. And I and I think that there is going to be, yes, there's going to be a lot more, unfortunately, surveillance. We're going to lose some privacy and there's going to be a lot more cracking down on things that normally people let go. But we're in a war here, uh, not against people, not against Asians, not against the the internet or the or the media we're in it it's a literal virus that is trying to kill you and all that you can do is stop it from killing you and stop yourself from killing other people because you have to go get tacos stop it stop it leslie thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me i know you said this was your second interview today so i'm glad that your book is getting out there in the world because i think your story and his story and your family's story, it's important that people know oh, about thank it. You. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I know that you're doing a lot of these and you've got your other stuff to do and, and bills to pay and stuff, but I'm, I'm super excited for you. And I appreciate your enthusiasm for, for books and not just for my story, but to try to get people's stories out there. So what you're doing is really important. And thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Have a good day. I hope that, um, your house isn't too chaotic, but I can imagine with a six-year-old it is. <laughs> oh, child. I can hear the, the natives rumbling about outside right now. So thank you so much. Right. You have a great day. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you so much to Leslie for coming on here today. Her book is so incredibly personal. And though, yeah, it is sad, like she says, it's also funny. She tries to bring out the humor in her husband's life and their relationship. You can find more about her at Leslie graystreeter.com and on Twitter she's just at Leslie Streeter. I will link both of those into the show notes. You can follow Day Beautiful on all the social medias at Day Beautiful and on the internet at daybeautiful.net. Thank you so much to everyone who supported the digital book tour. I think there's about four more left. The end of April is going to be a tight one for me, starting a new project at work. But I want to thank every author who came on to read from and discuss their book. We'll shift back to a monthly format starting in May. Thanks, y'all. Have a good one.